Welcome to the Factory Futurist Podcast, where we profile the thought leaders, technologies, and companies revolutionizing high-tech manufacturing. We learn from the best about how they sustain high-performance leadership in technology, their personal life, and their companies. If you're just joining the podcast, my name is Drew Allen. I'm the host, and when I'm not chatting with these fine folks, I'm the VP of Strategic Development at Grace Technologies. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today on the Factory Futurist Podcast, we have Terrence O'Hanlon. He is the publisher of ReliabilityWeb.com, Reliability Magazine, and Uptime Magazine. He is certified in asset management by the Institute of Asset Management and is a certified maintenance and reliability professional by SMRP. Terrence is the acting executive director of the Association of Asset Management Professionals and the executive editor and publisher of the fifth edition of the Asset Management Handbook and most recently the author of 10 Rights on Asset Management with Ramesh Gulati. Terrence is also a voting member of USTAG PC251, also for ISO 55000, ASTM E53, Asset Management Standards Committee. Most importantly, Mr. O'Hanlon has been selected as the sole US representation through ANSI for the ISO Working Group 39 to create a standard for competence in assessing and certifying asset management programs known as ISO 17021-5. Mr. O'Hanlon is a member of the Institute of Asset Management, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, the Association of Facility Engineers, Society of Maintenance and Reliability Professionals, and the Society of Tribologists and Lubrications Engineers. I am so excited to have him on the show. He is one of the foremost thought leaders, and if he isn't the thought leader, he has collected the best thought leaders from around the country in the world of reliability and we are so lucky to have him. So please join me in welcoming Terry O'Hanlon. Well, thank you so much, Terrence, for joining me on the Factory Futurist today. How has your quarantine been going? Uh, well, considering we're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, I'd say pretty well overall. Pretty well overall. My, my first question for you, though, is are we going to be seeing a new uptime element uh, on the chart that has to do with viruses <laughs> or uh, health. And <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, 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 we released a couple of years ago a, a game for reliability leadership, and it's based on the zombie apocalypse. So we've been, we've been practicing that for a couple of years, really, and we're, we're ready for it here. <laughs> I, please, please send me this link to this game. Uh, I'll, I'll have to put it up with the podcast show notes. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, part of, part of what... Um, Part of the reliability leadership, the framework that that we spend a lot of time with is is you know taking a stand to create a future that wasn't going to happen anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And we're you know in in a time like this, it's more applicable than ever. It's always useful to be able to create a future, but you know being empowered to create a new future. You know, and I guess I'm diving in probably too deep to start off with, but basically, you know, the the world always has circumstances, and sometimes those circumstances stack up against you, and other times. The circumstances, you know, stack up in your favor. But either way, um, you know, if you let the circumstances determine your outcomes, you're probably going to be disappointed more often than you're than you're than you're going to celebrate. You know, if you want to celebrate, you create those outcomes. You know, it, reliability leadership is intentional. It never happens by accident. So, off of that, what is your current working definition of reliability? My current, well, 
that now there's a couple ways we could we could go into that. If you, want, <laughs> you know, if you if you want to if you want to talk like from a reliability engineering standpoint, it's the ability of an asset or a system to produce a certain a certain output under certain conditions over a certain period of time. Um, that's the technical definition of reliability. But there's only about 20 people in the whole world who would care about that level of definition. You know, we 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 work in inquiries, we work in questions, and one of the questions is the question you asked: What is reliability? Um, the conversations and the input of of that question are more important than the question itself. But uh, reliability can be as simple as it works. I like that. I, I that, that might be the best one I've heard yet. Yeah, you know, it just works. You turn, you know, and if you want it, you know, if you want a because. The thing is, reliability has kind of not been held hostage, but it's been in a small, a small vacuum. And what we find is that the world's ready for reliability. You put your key in the car and you turn it nowadays or you have the fob and you start your car and your car delivers you safely to your destination. That's reliability. You turn on the light switch and the light comes on. That's reliability. You know, your, your, your things, your systems are doing what you want them to do in the way that you want them to do it. I think, you know, obviously I am, I am sorely missing not being in Seattle with you guys this year because uh, it's always a personal um, filling up event for me, right? Like my mind always expands and I get new ideas and there's creative juices that flow at the event and all the networking that happens. However, I'm thinking that, you know, I, as I'm looking at the reliability of these systems, a lot of them it seems to me like the ideas around reliability, it's not just lubrication or vibration analysis or these technical aspects. You know, now it's maybe more looking at the externalities like your supplier inputs. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just going to set you up. Supply chain reliability. Give me the, the Terrence O'Hanlon uh, uh, lines on that. Well, A, they're broken. You know, so they're broken now. We're clearly seeing that. No, no one's really talking about it. Why don't we have tests? Why don't we have masks? They're, they're talking about it lightly, but nobody's really, you know, there hasn't been any CNN diagrams yet. You know, there hasn't been a, a theme song, supply chain, dump da da da, like there are for hurricanes and things. But, um, but no, but the supply chains are broken. Um, and there's sort of a, uh, uh, push towards nationalistic tendencies of supply chain after 20 years of globalization. I, I, you know, I, my, my crystal ball is no better than yours, but once you, once you take apart uh, an intricate supply chain, very, very difficult to put it together in the exact same way uh, that it was before. So I guess a couple of things on a bigger picture, what I think, uh, you know, folks like you or, or me that might have a voice in in the community, I think our obligation is to the sooner we can we can assist people with letting go of yesterday and, and really looking towards tomorrow. I think is is going to be healthier. There is I don't think we're going to you know to quote Fleetwood Mac you know yesterday's gone yesterday's gone um, you know and so we need to move to tomorrow and and leaders have to have to guide their their families and they have to guide their colleagues and they have to guide their communities to to that future. So part of the future is, wow, we can't go to Walmart and get Clorox wipes anymore. We can't find Purell hand sanitizer anymore. Why not? Where is that? Or where are the N95 masks? Why don't we have them? Why don't we have some of the medical, uh, pharmaceutical, um, you know, drugs that we need for treatment and things of that nature? 
Well, we did have all them before this. Um, and, and even though pandemic was a risk that everybody knew they were going to have, um, we, we weren't very well prepared, but not just us. No one, no one was really well prepared. And, and that shows either how good the previous supply chains were because they were working so good and they were so complex that nobody really uh, ever questioned them. But I think we're going to come out of it better as we produce these new supply chains. We'll, I think they were not built accidentally, but sort of they were built one piece at a time, need by need by need. We have an opportunity now to build the supply chain with intention, just like reliability leadership. What do we want the supply chain to do in what kind of conditions? In hurricane conditions, in pandemic conditions, in war conditions, in terrorism conditions. You know, we've all experienced these business interruptions. And are there things we can do? I'll tell a quick story about supply chain and that we had a client that has been making a 10-year reliability journey. I mean, fantastic. They were doing everything right. I mean, you couldn't, you really just couldn't even do, the culture was going on, the technology was going on, the processes were going on, and they were really great. They happened to make orange juice. Um, you know, there's not a lot of companies in America that make things anymore. That's a company that was making things. Um, Hurricane Irma came in to Florida and knocked all, it was right at harvest, and knocked all the oranges off the trees right at that time. Well, Mexico's orange supply chain is about 15 or 20 days be, uh, on harvest behind the United States or behind Florida. They were able to pick, they were able to pick right up and plug into the supply chain. Well, when the U.S. producer got back on its feet and had this crop the next year, the supply chain was already full. So there was no room for them. And it wasn't like the, the, the consumer said, okay, we'll take, the, we'll take the new supplier out and put you back in. Once you lose your place in the supply chain, you're out. You know, and it's very difficult to get back in. So I guess a couple things. I personally really hope, and I know this is going contrary to the, to the conversations, I hope that globalism is not dead. Um, I happen to travel 300 days a year before COVID-19, and I love everyone around the world. Uh, we all share this big blue ball, you know, floating around in space. And, and, you know, if you look at it from space, there is no United States, there is no Canada, you know, there is no England. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's the planet Earth. And we're all people on the planet Earth. And I prefer to look at things that connect us rather than things that divide us. My, my ancestry is Irish, and I can sort of tell you that that nationalism doesn't end well. Uh, you know, it's not not the best thing in the world, not the best approach in the world. Everybody's our brother and our sister, and they have things we need, and we have things that they need. And I think we need to put that back together. Yes, it's painful when things like this happen, and we can't get our Purell, and we can't get our Clorox wipes. And you know, I'm I'm using ones that everybody can identify with. But believe me, if you were making automobiles or refrigerators, you're you're really in trouble right now. And because those supply chains really collapsed and you're scrambling and everyone's scrambling to put the supply chains back together again. Now, you know, where does that relate to reliability? Well, everything relates to reliability. If you want your system or your assets to work well, it, it, it needs certain things or it needs to produce certain things. And if you're, you know, you could have the most reliable system in the world. If you don't have the parts or the material or the process to put in the front end of that, it doesn't matter that you got reliability or not. You're not going to be producing what the system was designed to produce. So we're in trouble right now. I mean, we're in trouble. And it's going to take smart people, innovative people to put it all right back together again. Um, I'm also, I'm, you know, I'm a little over 60. And I, I don't know a lot in life, but there's a few things that I know. One of them is momentum. 
And when you bring that momentum to a close, you know, there's been many times where I've had things going and I've said, yeah, let me just stop that for a little while. I could start that back up anytime that I want. And when you turn something off, man, it's hard to start it again. And, you know, it's going to take all of us, all of us together, lifting this economy as hard as we can. It, it, no one's going to be able to sit back. No one's going to be an observer. It is going to take every American, it's really going to take every person on the planet to, to really lift and get these economies started again. We're all going to have to make sacrifices. My hat's off. I don't often compliment Washington, D.C., but my, my, my hat's off that the fact that the Treasury showed up and they're really at least trying to assist businesses. They're trying to assist people. Um, you know, of course, there's always complaints. They gave too much this way or they didn't give enough this way. Understood. And those are probably all very valid. But I think, they're, I think their intention is in the right place. And I think they're doing a lot of things right. Now it's us. We can't just continually ask the government to do it. We got to restart our industries. And we have great industries in the United States and, and all over the world. And I think we can do it. I just think people are, are scared because they can't see the future. They cannot see the future. They can't see the future with COVID. They can't see it. Is it going to disappear? And so for me, at least, I can tell you, I'm, I'm considering it's going to be here forever. Yes. Um, and, and then I'm just figuring out, okay, if it is here forever, how do we now create a new normal so we can have a life? I mean, humans, you know, the reason why everybody's all pent up, they need to go out. We need to socialize. We need to be with people. Um, and so. How do we do that with COVID? And that's what we're working on right now. It's very confusing. It's not fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's scary uh, to think that something at work could hurt us or something at a restaurant could hurt us. But, you know, I think we'll figure that out. You know, America is extremely innovative, extremely well, innovative. So I, I'm going to just go back because we covered just a lot of ground in a yeah. short amount of time. Okay, so I want to I stop you a little bit and go back to a couple items that I want to make sure we don't get glossed over. It was about you know stopping looking back and look towards the future. So what that seems like to me is really the sunk cost fallacy, right? You know, you if you're one of these business leaders and you put a big investment in China or you yeah. personally have been on a uh, you know on hundreds of my hundreds of thousands of miles of airplane flights going over there to start things up. How do you get past that sunk cost feeling, that fallacy, and and, and look towards the future? It's well, one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. Yeah, listen, life's not fair. Nobody said it was going to be fair. You know, nobody said just because you did it all right um, that you get to, you know, you get to benefit from that every single day for the rest of your life. Um, you know, that just doesn't happen. You win the Super Bowl and the next day, you know, it's it's Tuesday. You got to go back to work kind of a thing. And so, 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 you know, what do you do with sunk costs? Uh, you know, what's recoverable, what's not recoverable? you know, I, that is still being sorted out, I guess I would say. Um, but here's, here's, if you put it a different way, what's the choice of responses? Nothing, you know, to stay sort of in our houses and don't restart the economy, figure out how to deal with this new reality. And the fact that we don't have a vaccine, we don't have, you know, we don't have all the solutions yet. What can we do in that context? Now, that I will I will bang Washington D.C. just a little bit and say it sure would be nice if we seem to have more of a uh, comprehensive strategy in that regard. But the strategy will then come from the businesses. The strategies will come from the states or the cities or the counties. And maybe maybe in some ways there's aspects of that 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 make it even better. Um, 
I don't know that you'll ever recover those sunk costs. I think a lot of those sunk costs are going to be gone. And, and we're just going to have to pick up and start where we are and see what's recoverable and move forward in a positive way from that. I think if we spend a lot of time trying to go back and recover, that's going to take us longer to get to a new prosperity than, than just starting where we are right now. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I I my mind as you were sharing that one story about the the Florida orange grower. I, and and by the way, they're out of business now. They're out of business. They did everything right. This was pre-COVID, you know. And and now now they've decided because we also the government uh, left tariffs off, and so now we get cheap orange. Almost all the oranges from Brazil or from you know from the Dominican Republic. It's mainly from Brazil, and you know. No offense, so I like a lot of Brazilian friends. Hi, don't send me any emails, but they don't pay as well as the, as we pay in the United States. And even though those a lot of those workers in the Florida orange juice were were brought in from Mexico, they were paid U.S. wages to work here. Yeah, and and and, and so I one of the things I don't know if we're properly doing in this country, maybe a little bit more, is celebrating those essential workers. Wow, like, wow. The, the story the story that really excites me is I believe it was a BNSF plant up in Michigan. I don't know if you saw this story, um, no, but- they're a client, uh, so, yeah. What? They're a client, so- yeah. uh, So I, I don't know if you can talk, so I'll talk about it, you, okay. but it was public news. Okay. Um, and they, um, they got a selection of volunteers. I think it was like 40 to 50 people. And they kept that plant running up in Michigan producing plastics for the, um, you know, for the medical industry, you know? And I think I'm I'm trying to remember, but they spent eight weeks living on site, quarantine off from the rest of the world. Actually, actually, I did hear that. I did hear that. I mean, yeah, that's dedication. That's it. So, and that, and we all benefit from that. You know, when nobody said, "Hey, your job is to camp out here," you know, your job is to isolate to keep your family safe and everything. Your job is to work 24 seven to make sure these medical, these are people who stepped up. These are people who are living at risk. These are people who are really living their lives at the fullest because the biggest gift that you're ever given is, is the ability to contribute. Um, you know, and, and wow, what a difference that, what a difference they made. They'll be able to tell their grandchildren that story. Um, you know, and we like you and I are talking about it, but it gives me shivers to be honest with you. And, and, and I'll expand it. Of course, all the frontline maintenance workers and operators out there. Um, but you know, of course, all the medical professional frontline. Sometimes we forget about the bus drivers, the cleaners, the you know, the people that we you know we really depend on for a lot of what's invisible in our life, and it's invisible because it works so well. Mm-hmm. Police, firemen, and it, it's those things that give me personal hope because you know I, I I'm a huge Churchill fan. If you've listened to any of the podcasts or you see any of my posts on LinkedIn. I'm telling you, that guy was light years ahead of, you know, light years ahead of people. You know, um, he, he's a great example because, you know, post-war, maybe not the best. Well, you're, you're Irish and you're going to, uh, you're, you're going to give Churchill some props. You're oh, going to get, you're going to. I share, I share. I, because what I love about him is he was the perfect leader for the context and the time, yes. yeah. you know, and, and uh, I have, you have to respect that. And, uh, not well, you know, not well liked necessarily, wasn't running a popularity contest, had to make very tough decisions. But what I like about him is another person might have said we're defeated. Another person might have said that we're, 
you know, we're, we're, we're going to go under. He said, we're victory, victory, or he actually said that, but uh, victory, um, you know, so wow. You know, that's like taking a stand. That's, a, that's like Gandhi. You take a, you, you make a statement. We'll win. We're actually, he didn't even say we'll win. We're winning. We're, we're victory. We are victory. He stood in victory when he was a, 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 an inch from defeat. I guess, a, yeah, they use inches over there. An inch in, de, an inch, an inch in defeat, you know, and wow, to have that. And then, and then from the conviction of his stand came victory. When it was impossible, it was improbable and, and nearly impossible. And from that stand, he created victory. And if it wouldn't have been him, and if it wouldn't have been him standing in that moment in time in history, then they, it possibly could have had a, a drastically different outcome. This is one reason why I do not like the top 10 traits of leader list, or here's the best, here's what a leader needs to be. This guy was drinking whiskey or, or you know, bourbon and scotch, whatever he was drinking. He Gosh, was soda and, you know, starting at 8 a.m., I believe it was delivered with his paper, but, you know. And, and, you know, obnoxious and me, you know, oh, they've got to really care about their employees. He didn't care about the, you know, he, this guy was just going to, he was single focused. Bring us to victory. What do you want, a guy who likes you or a guy who brings you to victory? You want a guy who's going to bring you to victory. There is no requirement for leadership except for leadership, except for the act of leadership. And he rose to that act of leadership. And so, yes, as an Irishman to an Englishman, God bless you, sir. Wow. Okay. So I've got two killer quotes so far out of you. I think it was um, the biggest gift is the ability to contribute. And now the only requirement for leadership is leadership. Uh, we, we can just close it down now. I think those are, I think those are completely sufficient. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I, um, I, uh, the, the other, the other thing I want to get your thoughts on, and, and this is diving into a little bit more uh, technical, I guess, is it, and if they are a client, uh, we can move on. But what would you be telling Smithfield and Tyson right now? Wow, that's tough stuff. Well, I, I would tell them people first. People first. People first. People first. People first. You're but, not going to have. You're not going to have that. Their customers are people, and like, you know, not having meat too. I mean, that's yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. hundred percent right. I'm. I'm not arguing that at all. But the people who produce. And those, I don't know if you've been in a plant like that before, and I'm not picking on any particular uh, food company. There's not a lot of social distancing. Um, so this is something new. So the challenge is on the producer. You know, the challenge is on the producer. How do we set it up? Listen, those guys are just like the rest of us. They need to pay their car payment. They need to pay their mortgage. They got kids they want to send to school. They got stuff that they want. You know, that's that's how our life and our society is. So they don't want to sit back and, and, and not be at work. They want to go to work. But the, the, there is an onus on, on, the main, on the owners to create conditions. That, and this is just a fact going forward. So the sooner the owners get to this, the better. We are going to have to, until there's some kind of solution to this, we're going to have to t take the solutions that are available to us. And part of that is working at a distance. And, you know, again, they, they figured out how to cram 300 people in a plane. Uh, now they'll have to reconfigure that in a way. Maybe we'll all be in bunks. Maybe we'll all be in sealed compartments. Who knows? Because they still need 300 people to make money on a plane. You still need a certain number of people in the plant to make the plant profitable. It was designed for a certain number of workers getting out a certain number of, so you can't just say, okay, we'll cut it down to 25%. 
because you can't make it, you know, that's not a profitable business at that point in time. Now, that doesn't mean you throw your hands up in the air and you go back to yesterday. You have got to figure out the solutions for the people. I don't know what that answer is, but I think there's, there's people working on it now. We're in the conference business. We'll never have a conference probably the same that we've ever had in the past before. It's decimated. The attendance, you know, Seattle, we didn't get to do. Where The August conference is relocated to December. And who knows on December? I mean, I hope it happens, but, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with the states opening up and, you know, are people practicing social distancing? Are we going to have a big spike or something like that? But it's up to us, and we're working very carefully with our hotel partners. What what are the cleaning protocols? What's in your H? Let me see your HVAC maintenance records. Um, how are we going to clean while there's people there? How are we going to label the food? We're certainly not going to do buffet lines anymore. Um, you know, and so you know what what are all the things that have to change to to create a thing called a conference or or Maybe it's not a thing called a conference anymore. Maybe it's the outcomes of conferences realized in different ways. So, you know, it's a real mind stretch. This current, this current situation is causing us all to turn inside out, upside down, you know, sideways, pyramid wise. And the solutions are there. I am not, I please, and I hope nobody hears this and thinks that there's, it's all hopeless, but the virus is here. And so, you know, let's just have that as a fact until somebody eradicates it or, or creates it as irrelevant. In the meantime, let's get creative. We are a smart bunch of people and let's figure out these solutions. So, again, my advice, though, to, to all the producers, take care of your people. Now, I don't know what that answer is right now, but you, no matter what, don't put your people at risk. You know, don't put your people at risk. People first, people first, people first. The companies that have a people first philosophy will be the ones standing after this. I mean, I, I you know, we, we, we've done a lot with our production area to keep them in, in, in some ways, it almost feels like we've made them pariahs, but it's, it's like we, you know, it's like, it's like the opposite of the pariah. It's like right. protect the king, you know? <laughs> and, right. And, right. You know, yeah. Don't. That's a great way to put it. Protect yeah. the king. You know, and then you want to wonder how, what's that going to do to the culture? Because there was a culture pre-COVID and now we're changing that culture. That's changing. That's a change in culture as well as a change in practice. And what's that going to do? And again, I don't think any of us really have the answers yet, but I think they're, they're powerful questions that we need to live in. So Terrence, you know, you, you are always so positive, so forward thinking, so optimistic. I don't know about you, but man, over the last... I, I found out about this thing relatively early because of my time in Asia and I have a lot of connections there. And, you, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so I, I did see it coming quite, quite ahead of where a lot of people were at, but I, I still, I mean, it just seems like every, every few weeks I'll get into a little bit of kind of a depressive period. Have you been experiencing that? What have you, you know, what have you been doing kind of in your personal life to, to, to get out of that, either that fear mindset or that, Oh man, like I just, you know, I just don't want to do it anymore. You know, uh, what, what have you found to be helpful? Uh, well, a couple of things in the, in the beginning, I, that's where I started because, you know, for me, the loss was instant, you know, no conferences, you know, they, I mean, Bellevue where we're having the conference was seven miles away from what at that time was the first death in COVID virus. You know, it's like, ah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so, and, and God bless their family. I don't mean to, I don't mean to take that, you know, lightly or anything. But but uh, our the governor closed our conference. So um, you know, anger, resentment. Why me? Victim. Uh, you know, 
Why should this happen? I was doing everything right. I played by all the rules. I, you know, I worked hard. I deserve this, you know, and, and, you know, boom, it snatched from me. And so in the beginning, I think I was angry, resentful, fearful, uh, you know, all the things that come with this. And um, one day I decided to, I chart reliability journey. So one day I decided, I wonder if I could chart a COVID journey the same way I, 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 I chart a reliability journey. And I created a chart and I haven't looked at it since I did it. I put it up on, I put it up on LinkedIn um, and it got a ton of response. And, you know, it was like one of the early posts that anybody put up that was had any kind of hope or out of the darkness at all. And for me, it was a transformative moment because what I, what, what hit me that very day is that no one, no one promised me it was going to be fair, you know? Nobody promised me that what I had worked so hard for and what I had earned was going to be mine forever. And so, you know, once I was able to sort of let that concept go, that nobody deserves anything, you know, here's what, here's what we, the gift we've been given. I can breathe. I'm on the planet. My mind seems to be without a ventilator, without a ventilator, without a ventilator. (laughs) My mind seems to be functioning. I have friends and family who support me and I support, um, you know, and that, you know, that's the blessing in life. And I have experienced financial loss. I have experienced severe financial loss. I've experienced uh, severe health loss in the past. And, you know, what, what happens when you're stripped of everything is that it's no mystery what's important in your life. Uh, you know, you can look around and you can see what's important in your life. And it's easy to see what's important. It's easy to be in touch with it. And then all of a sudden we start experiencing success and we add all the trappings of life and everything. And those important things sometimes get clouded in the process. We think other things are important. Those things are not important. They're just transient. And, and I know it's easy for me to sit here and say that, you know, as people are experiencing loss, whether they've lost a relative or a, or a family member or a loved one, one way or the other, um, or they've lost a lot of money or they've lost opportunity or they've lost time. Those are real losses. But if you're alive and you're well and you have a life in front of you and you have p- people in that life, um, you're blessed. And, and you should move from that point to wherever you're going. If you try to move from deep loss to wherever you're going, it, you're going to have a hard time because you've got this baggage on your back called, I lost this. I lost that. I deserve this. Why they take it from me? You're not going to get very far. You know, you, you, you seem like quite a mindful person. So I, I just want to, I mean, what? What are some of your daily routines and practices? Or do you do you have a meditation practice? Are you are you pretty religious about your about your mornings? Talk to me a little bit about like the the routines and the the magic that you have going on. And I know you used to travel, so I'm interested what it looked like during the travel period and now with no travel. Um, so so a lot like you, I have I have contacts all over the world, and I was uh, my spider senses were going off early. Uh, on this, people thought I was crazy. I closed the company and sent everybody home to work from home super early, uh, and they just couldn't even believe it. You know, I was uh, I was I was uh, considered probably wacky and crazy at the beginning, and then they didn't know I was Nostradamus by the time the thing got you know got done. Um, so so I I am um, uh, I do, I used to do what's called Bikram yoga every day for seven years. It's a hot yoga practice for 90 minutes. And I was militant about it. Um, but then I, I got sick. I had a health issue back in 2011 and it knocked me out for about two years, really. And, uh, yeah, when I got a thing called Guillain-Barre 
Um, it's a, it's kind of what they're talking about, like with this Kawasaki syndrome with the kids now. You, if my antibodies ate the myelin sheath off my nerves. So in electrical terms, it stripped the insulation off the wires. Uh, and so my nerves didn't have any insulation on them. So when my brain told my toe to move, it was like lightning going through, you know, I know what it is to send that signal to my toes. Uh, and so, and eventually the body just starts shutting down and says, I'm not going to move my legs for you anymore. I'm not going to move my arms for you. Uh, and slowly but surely it, it starts to immobilize you. And so I spent about 18 months in the hospital with it. And, and, uh, and yeah, and so what they, you know, so I did knock on wood, come back. A lot of people prayed for me. A lot of people supported me and, and I got back on my feet. And as I said, when you're in those periods, you know, what's important really, uh, really comes clear for you. Uh, that's when I came back with uptime elements, actually. That's where that, that actually kind of came from that work. It's did. funny. My, 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 my mom's had two bouts of ovarian cancer. And I think each bout, my dad's written a patent because he's yeah. been next to it, next yeah. to her bedside, yeah. you know, yeah. that's an issue. Exactly. Yeah. It focuses you. So, but, but my point to answer your question, I guess, is I do pranayama, it's called pranayama breathing. So I do that in the morning where you, you know, you breathe in very deep and, and it's sort of a body stretches up. And that's really all I do anymore. I really don't do any other, I walk every day. I walk for two miles, three miles, four miles every day, but more towards the end of the day. Um, and I love walking. I could walk, I could walk and never stop. Um, did, did you change your diet? Did any, did your diet have anything to play after, after the two, like during while you were doing through the hospital and through all that pain? Oh yeah. All that. Or, I was like, I was like Yoda, Jesus and Buddha all in one, um, you know, kind of a thing. But then, but then life starts to come back, you know, and then the Doritos and then the potato chips and, you know, and I thought you were going to ask me about my diet here during COVID. Man, I mean, you know, I don't know. So no one's asking about anyone's diet during COVID. Yeah, man, now. I was going to say, that's been really bad. But I'm now, I'm now kind of through that phase and I'm back to normalcy. But boy, there was the first 30 days. That was, that was bad. When you think the world's going to end, you just eat whatever the heck you want. <laughs> uh, so now I'm at least back under, back under what I would call some semblance of control. Okay. So, so are you, do you, do you, do you follow any, I mean, certain, I mean, before not the 30 days of craziness, um, but are you, you, are you kind of vegetarian? Do you eat a lot of meat? What's your, what's your kind of diet makeup? Well, I love, I, I love steak, but I'm very, you know, my, my, my dad had a meat packing plant, uh, you know, small meat packing plant growing up. Oh, wow. I had no idea when I asked you the question about the, about the, um, uh, the, the, the meat packing that you yeah. had actual experience. In. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I thought everybody had, big tenderloins like that in their refrigerator, you know, to cut a filet for an after school snack. Um, you know, I thought that's what everybody did. And uh, so, so, so I'm pretty particular in, in Nebraska. I mean, you know, there's, there's corn fed beef in Nebraska. So it's the, it's the best. It is literally maybe a little bit from, from Argentina. I like that meat too, but, but those two are the best meats in the world. And I, I just absolutely love a good, a really good steak, like a ribeye. So I, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I just love steak. I, that's my favorite food. I could eat it every day. I'm a cook. I, I, so I cook every day. So I'm not really vegetarian, um, although I can cook vegetarian. I was a vegetarian. Before I started all this craziness with reliability, I was a, I was a vegetarian. I was like 150 pounds and, you know, moved to New York. And at my first, my first entree into reliability, I ran a uh, an ultrasound company for about 20 years. One I'm sure you're very familiar with. 
Um, and I was the CEO of that company. And I helped build that into a global player, one of the largest ultrasonic companies around now. And that really gave me a lot of my experience. Um, in the beginning, it was all focused on energy, but then the concept of condition monitoring started. And I spent 20 years traveling the world and crawling into every kind of machinery configuration that there was on the planet. And because of the ultrasound has a very versatile tool. And so, you know, just checking out the applications and stuff. And then when I, when I left there, um, somebody had come to me during, during um, uh, it, that we were deregulating the telephone company, the telephone industry in the United States. And I was a walking, talking AT&T commercial. I had their hardware. I had their long distance. I had their local. I had, I had everything AT&T. And the account rep came in and said, our computers have, have identified you as uh, somebody who we can use as a beta test. I said, a beta test for what? This is like 1992. They're like the internet. And I'm like the internet. And I said, I've heard of it, but I said, I don't really know much about it. And they said, come down to Bell Laboratories in Murray Hill, New Jersey. And I worked with the 10 guys who became WorldNet Services, uh, AT&T at WorldNet. Uh, and they didn't even have a business name at that point in time. And we published with HTML1 uh, and, and published uh, that website, which there's remnants of that website still still up um and what was, uh, what, what's the name of the website uesystems.com uesystems okay and uh so you know i i kind of got hip to the internet way earlier than everybody else did and uh you know i really loved like clue train manifesto there was no revenue on the web at that time um so it was really audience accumulate audience and with ultrasound you had to constantly be out in front of people you know the the cameras were eighty thousand. the vibrations you know, detectors were 40,000. The ultrasound was only 5,000 at that time. So, so, you know, we had to sell a lot of it and then sell it again and then sell it again and then sell it again. So there was a lot of publishing involved. And so when I left, um, I decided to start, I was really hot on the internet. I didn't have enough money to start a, uh, a magazine. So I started the website reliability web. Um, and my mom had joined the Peace Corps at 62. My father had passed away. She was down in Lesotho, Africa, living in a mud hut. And so her house is on my great grandfather's 360 acre cornfield in Nebraska. And we're in Nebraska. We're, we're in Iowa. So we're in between Blair and Omaha. Okay. Right on the Missouri river. And so, so she said, come, you can use the house. And I started, I had a corn cam that pointed out to the corner, a little 640 by 480 corn cam in, in 1998. Uh, and, uh, and then, um, uh, reliability web, uh, so the, I knew one of them was going to take off. I just didn't know which one would take off. And and, uh, and it wasn't the corn cam. The corn cam didn't didn't make it. And uh, so reliability web did. And, and at that time, because there was no um, no real revenue on the internet, I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't, you know, I didn't wasn't making any money. Uh, I didn't, you know, but I, you know, we just started accumulating audience, and uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. And then a friend of mine that I had helped bring his laser alignment company over here to America, um, he, he, he called me, well, I didn't even know him, and he called me one day and said, can I come to your office in New York, and I want to learn of American distribution, you know, so I said, come on. So he came, and he, you know, he left, he eventually brought his company here, but he called me up, and he said, Terrence, I see you on the internet, uh, you know, I want my company to be there, I'll send you a check, you know, and he hung up, and I got, about a week later, I got a thousand dollar check in the mail, and I'm like, Oh, this is how it works. Okay, good. So I just need to do this a lot more. And, uh, and uh, that was the like beginning. What year was that? What year was that? 90, 98, 99. 
and eating anything. Wow. Yeah. So, wow, that was when it was really blowing up. That was like the. It was really blowing up. Purplesocks.com, you know, they'd have a Wall Street valuation of, you know, 40 million or 40 billion or whatever. I mean, it was crazy. Then the dot-com bubble burst, you know. Though I have emails back where Google was, you know, sending me, come on, buy our IPO stock. <laughs> so, so when you're looking back on that, on that time, what are the key takeaways for you during that time that set you up for later success? Um, the, the, the turning the pyramid upside down was really the breakthrough. In, in other words, uh, you know, you think the, 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 the natural tendency would be to serve the advertisers uh, because that's the publishing model, right? At that time, there were 15 trade publications focusing with maintenance, and they were all driven by advertising revenue. Um, you know, in the beginning, there was no advertising revenue on the web. You'd call advertisers and they'd say, no, we have all that money over here for, for print advertising. And so I, I ended up going into print advertising. That's a difference. Or print magazines, that's a different story. And as I did, they said, no, no, we're shifting all of our money online. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a story for a different day. What, what the real breakthrough was for us is not necessarily not worrying about the vendors, um, but worry, you know, in other words, serving the audience first. So bypassing the vendors to provide value to the audience. Because listen, here's what we used to say to our salespeople: don't don't tell anybody our competitive secret. It's it's value, you know. Uh, and and you know, so we would work on what does what does somebody who's working around assets need to make a journey to reliability. So really, what Reliability Web really is, it's my journey my journey to knowing what it is to go on a reliability journey and have that be effective. That's what reliability web really is translated. And 50,000 people watched me do it. You know, you made it for yourself first. I, I always made it for myself, not first. It still is, you <laughs> yeah. know? So, 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 you know, it's people watching me be willing to learn in front of them. And, and, uh, and that's what I do. And, and so, we don't necessarily, you know, like you have great and deep technical expertise at your organization. We have technical expertise also, but we sort of keep it to ourselves. We stay at the journey level. We know you're the mountain climber, right? You can get to the top of Mount Everest. We'll Sherpa you up there because we know what's on base camp one. We know what's on base camp two. We know what's on base camp three. We've made the journey with a number of companies. You know, when you publish Uptime Magazine, that's 15 journeys in issue. When you do the reliability conference out in Seattle, that's a hundred reliability journeys. Then we move to Maximo World, there's another hundred journeys. Then we move to IMC, that's another hundred journeys. It's like the farmer's commercial. We know a lot because we see a lot. Uh, and, the, and the journeys pattern out after a while. So it's, it's not that the equipment problems pattern out, they're, they're infinite. You know, the ways that equipments can fail, there's a lot of those. Um, but the journey starts to pattern out after a while. And, We've known forever that it's a technical journey and there's a lot of technical things that we have to master. But what's less known and more or less practiced is it's a people journey. Oh, so, well, you know how, but, but there's very little, uh, there's very little framework for making that people journey. So we've sort of combined the two with the uptime elements framework. It's a, it's a technical journey, but at the, at its core, it's a people journey. And, you know, I, in some of the IEEE stuff that we attend or used to attend, you know, it, there seemed to be a little bit more of a resurgence of people getting away from just telling the technical story, right? The technical journey, like, 
you know, and, and, and people are talking about how to communicate to your team effectively and how, you know, those frontline managers are the, the leadership of the frontline manager is so important and what that looks like. And they're starting to quantify it in a lot more, you know, in a lot more ways. I, that was, that, that's something I really enjoy about the conferences is that, that focus on leadership as well, not just, and, and to be honest, when we, when we talk about any of our products with any of our customers, I say, you know, like condition monitoring is like one piece. I was like, if you think it's some silver bullet that's going to solve your machine problems or increase the efficiency of your factory, but for instance, you don't have a culture of integrity. Which is which is one of the the elements, you know, or a a, um, a culture of uh, performance improvement. Like I can send you all the alarms, and I can tell you what's wrong with your machine, but then no one's going to go and actually check out the alarms, and they're never going to improve on anything, you know. And and it's just like that message. I I I, I try to harp on it, but. Sometimes it's just like, guys, you really got to figure it out. <laughs> like, this but, is but, but listen, humans, humans can't do something that don't make sense to them. So whatever their current methodology or their current approach is, it makes perfect sense to them. It's, it's how reliability occurs to them. So in their head somewhere, there's a space that says, here's how reliability occurs, right? And then their behaviors and their practices follow that exactly. They can't deviate from it. So sometimes when you see something, you look and you say, wow, that doesn't make any sense. Not to you, because you it occurs to you differently, but to the person who did it, it made perfect sense to them. Humans can't do something that doesn't make sense to them. So we work on, what we work on is having reliability occur to them in a different way than it occurs to them now. And that's a journey. You can't just say, well, E equals MC squared. Uh, you know, let's do some time travel. Um, you know, that that isn't having the answers. See. There's these different domains in humanity. There's the knowing domain. So now we know E equals MC squared. Okay. But that doesn't allow us to be time travelers. And that doesn't allow us to do time travel. So there's a big gap between knowing something and being it and doing it. And so in our industry, I think we fall into the trap. Wow, there's a subject matter expert. They know a lot. Let's get them to come in and tell us what they know. And so the subject matter expert comes in, delivers the subject matter expert training. Research tells you 90% of that is evaporated in 30 days. No one remembers it in, in 30 days. And so that's all gone. But even if, the, let's just say they retained it at a 90% level. I just gave you the, the complete answer book for being the NFL star quarterback in the Super Bowl. Here's the book. It's filled with all the answers. All you have to do is follow this. And you're the you're the NFL. Now we suit you up and we put you out on that field. You're not going to be able to do NFL quarterbacking, and you're not going to really be able to be a reliable an NFL quarterback. Um, so the the knowing domain is useful, but it's not where reliability comes from. And and we we know the stuff we know, and we kind of have we know the stuff we don't know. There's this huge domain called we don't know what we don't know. And most people are very uncomfortable with that domain. Even if they know it exists, they don't know how to access it. You know, so we work on accessing that that domain of what you don't know, you don't know. That's that's some hard work, you know. And that's why we have the foundational stuff and the framework too. Because if you can stand in that place, if you can stand in that inquiry and just say, I don't know, 
and I don't even know what I don't know, then those insights actually start to come to you. That's the way the world works. You know, where did, where did E equals MC squared come from? There were a lot of physicists at the time. How come, how come Einstein could call that forth? How come Bob Dylan could write such cool songs? How come the Beatles could write? How come Shakespeare could write such great stories? Where did that come from? And that we think it comes from that big domain of we don't know what we don't know. And let's stand in it and see what insights show up for us. And well, that's where that's where gain comes from. Well, I want to I want to turn that around. I mean, where did you get that? I mean, wh- where did you get these insights from? Is that you know, are you kind of a voracious reader? Was this yeah. just through trial and error? What was? You can see my stack stacks of books here. Hold on, <laughs> here's under my desk. Okay, <laughs> that's that's. Can you see it? Wow. Yeah, that's quite the stack. Is that that's the quarantine stack? <laughs> that's current. That's the current stack. Um, yes, I'm a voracious reader, and when I walk, I listen to audiobooks. So I'm always re- I'm at least reading a book, and I'm listening to a book at the same time. Any, sometimes, sometimes multiples. Anything good uh, currently? Anything that's been really impactful recently? Or yeah, actually, let me get her name so I don't butcher it. And I think it's a her. It's a it's a name that I'm not familiar with, so I I I um, I I'd never heard it before, and I just actually accidentally came across it. Um, and then I listened to it and it was really fantastic. It's called When Things Fall Apart by uh, Pima Chodron. Let me see. Now it started here playing, but let me see if I can get it up so I can show you the cover. Oh, come on. Book details. There we go. This. Hold on. It's playing. Sorry. All right. Turn it off. And now I'm going to show you this. That is fantastic. Now it's a little zen, you know, it's a little zen-y kind of a thing, but Basically, you know, it's it's like things fell apart with us with this COVID. Now, what do you do? Do you just give up? Do you just yield? You know, what do you do? And so, you know, you you spend a lot of time in China. They think differently than we do. You know, they they think plus and minus one thing. A battery has a plus and a minus. We think of it like this. Oh, there's the plus and there's the minus, you know. And so they're two different things. And and sort of the Asian mentality is everything sort of all connected and all one and stuff. And so that's that book kind of takes you through that kind of thinking and then how you use that plus minus thinking that everything's one uh, to move out of when, when you know, the, she's not, she didn't know anything about the pandemic, but you know, when, when things typically fall apart. So that one was really good. Um, like kind of, kind of Zen for dummies and I'm a dummy. So I liked it a lot. So you has you have you found it hard though being at home like not traveling or did you find that there was a lot of your travel that you were doing that was unnecessary or what I mean I, I like I mean or like what I don't know I'm just really curious I mean because yeah, I yeah travel no a lot no great great question really great question it's all of those you know yes yes is the answer so no all of those did I have to go everywhere that I went probably not um, you know a lot of times people were paying me to go. Uh, so, you know, so I go, um, but mainly what, you know, sort of what, what my role had become was go, go out and see, you know, go out like Toyota, go take my, get my Gemba walk just happened to be the world and, and see what people are doing that's breakthrough. And so that's what was interesting to me. If I heard stories about somebody who was really creating breakthroughs and now there's so many with digital twins and digitalization and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to go see what they were doing. So most of the time I dog them down one way or the other and, and we'd figure out how to get together. And they wanted to know what, what our work was about. So that exchange 
very rich. And that's why I do hope, uh, you know, uh, certainly I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be an American and I'm proud of the country, but I'm proud of the world too. And I, and I really hope we stay connected to the world. I hope we don't shut that down. I'm very uncomfortable with the borders being closed and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just, I, it, for me, I, uh, I, it, it gives me a little bit of a sense of claustrophobia, you know? I mean, yeah. you know, I just, even my, you know, my, my wife is from Brazil. Um, and just like the thought of, you know, I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to go. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> you know, family I mean, and friends and, you know, that's just, that's crazy. So we shouldn't be restricted in that way. Um, and, and, you know, the, the virus doesn't seem to have any travel restrictions. Why do we, you know, so, so from that aspect of it, I hope it opens up. Did I have to go everywhere that I went? No, but I, I, and this is going to be our challenge moving forward. I, I have not, and what's frustrating me, maybe if you were going to ask me about an area of frustration is that I haven't quite, it's great talking to you. Like it's great talking to you here. You're very comfortable on the camera and everything. And, and we can just have a conversation as if you were sitting across the table from me. Mm. Um, not everybody is, is comfortable like that. And, and, and there's still, it, we're having a great conversation, but if we were together, who knows, maybe it would be even greater. I would pick up on something subtle about your body language or your facial expression that maybe I'm not going to get on the camera. Um, you know, or I'd see a book in your background and I'd, I'd ask you about it. And that would start a whole new line of conversation. There's so many, I don't want to say accidental, but kind of non-planned aspects to being with people. The benefit is so tremendous. And, and I'm, I am missing that. I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I don't want to just spend all my day on emails. You know, I used to do emails on the airplanes, you know, so if you had a four hour trip, you just do email then. And, and now I got to do email during the day and stuff. And, and so I'd miss it a lot. I, I mean, I, I can tell you, I mean, when we, you, you can't, you can't find out enough about your customer's business just by doing a phone call. I, I mean, I am just, I'm sorry. I just, the amount of context when they actually take you through and show you the process, you can describe it to me and I'll have a pretty good theoretical understanding of it. But like, you know, I, one, one, one of the conferences, your guys' conference last year in Seattle, you know, Ron Moore was talking about going around and the first thing that he would do is he would say, we need to clean this. Right. You know, and, and everything that you picked up from when you were actually going through and you were really doing heavy duty cleaning and you, he would, you know, he just recommend makes it, make a note of it, make a note of it, make a note of it my mind when i walk through a customer's facility i'm able to kind of do that in my mind and i i can assess the type of culture that they have and how our products can either be helpful or not helpful based on a lot of those cues but it's so hard to get those cues over web conference well and and i'm in a little different role than you are and let me just tell you something with the, that's similar to what you're saying but when i go like if 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 you know reliance or somebody in india knew i was coming they clean before I get there. And so, you know, I always feel a little bad because I'm sure that the pressure was really on the team, you know, but then on the other hand, you know, I know there's a benefit to them cleaning, you know, I know there's a benefit for them organizing and cleaning and getting, you know, getting everything ready for the visitor who's coming. In fact, you know, Ramesh Gulati, I don't know if you know Ramesh or not, he wrote uh, Maintenance Reliability Best Practices. That's one of the SMRP guides. And then he wrote with me, he wrote uh, 10 Rights of Asset Management. He was the sort of the reliability Sherpa at Arnold Engineering Development uh, at Arnold Air Force Base for 20 some years. 
And although he had specific jobs and duties, his biggest job and duty was just keeping that journey moving forward. And when you walk down the hallway, you know, you, you knew you were going to get in a conversation with reliability if you saw him. But he used to have me come up every year under the guise of sort of a mini audit kind of a thing. And, and he'd take me around to the different departments and they would present PowerPoints to me about what they were doing in steam systems, what they were doing in their electrical, what they were doing in their mechanical stuff. And, you know, at the end, I'd say, gee, you know, Ramesh, she's taking me to the airport. I didn't get a chance to tell him anything about what to do. Or, and, you know, then I realized after about 10 years, he just brought me up there to be the guy that they had to get the PowerPoint ready for. So they, they had to they had to get their story together. They had to be able to tell their story to a stranger so then they could definitely tell it internally, um, you know, kind of a thing. And he, he used me shamelessly. Uh, no, but it was great. And, they, you know. It paid was, you very well. Paid you yeah. very well to use you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was one, you know, that was just one of the things he did. He did a hundred little things like that. And there's, there's always sort of a, um, uh, an energy source, the nuclear core, you know, a guy like that, that just stands for reliability. And is it going to stand for unreliability? And he starts burrowing in. And, and that shows you what one person can actually do. And that, that base is critical for our national security and infrastructure. Um, and he's just made a tremendous difference. And by the way, born in India, now an American citizen, but born in India. We, you know, and again, I'm not going to make this a political show, but you know, we, we need to welcome smart people wherever they are. This, all countries need smart people. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we. Yeah, you're preaching the choir on that one. <laughs> my, that's, my how, that, well, that's how our that's how our country got great. You know, I love I work with I work with the Navajo. I've worked down on the Navajo Nation. I love the American Indians too. You know, and 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 I'm sorry right now they're under a little bit of suffering with this COVID. Um, so God bless them because they're my friends down there, and 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 we had some you know we had some really good interactions down there. They are the, you know, they're obviously the original Americans. And then here we all came, but we all came from somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm hoping what we're not, I, I'm hoping we're not seeing nationalism in that respect. I'm not saying we're not seeing it. I'm hoping we're not seeing it. I, I hope the way that businesses are thinking about it is not nationalizing their supply chains, but near shoring their supply chains. You know, there, there is a problem with relying on an ocean to get goods across. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, there, there yeah. is issues in, in, that, in that respect. And I, so I'm hoping, you know, what I, one of my predictions, I guess, is that I think Mexico is most likely going to be a clear winner out of this whole thing. I, I think, the, I think the, the administration down there, though, I, I followed the National Association of Manufacturers stuff pretty closely. And there seemed to be a lot of tension going on with how they were qualifying American businesses making essential goods for the U.S. but not making it for Mexico. So there definitely seemed to be some friction. But I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, NAFTA is going to be looking pretty good, and that there's going to be a lot of manufacturing coming back from Asia too. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not just as easy as putting all the tooling on a boat and sending it over. But but, but yeah, I agree with you 100. percent I think Mexico and I think Canada to an extent also. Um, are going are gonna to benefit from nearshoring. And I'm in agreement with you. I'm in 100% agree with you that essential, essential supply chain should be nearshore. Absolutely right. Um, but, but there's still a world and, and there's some efficiencies. You know, if you, if you went back 20 years and you had the chance to build these supply chains and you could fast forward to today, would you build them the same way? No, obviously not. You would, you would eliminate those weaknesses but there wasn't any master strategy. It wasn't like there was some Illuminati saying, let's 
you know, let's let's make the supply chains this, this, and this. They were built by me. Except for data centers. It's really interesting. Exactly. I mean, in the data center yeah. business, they that's all they think about is external risk factors. Right, right. You know, I mean, cost and external risk factors. I mean, remember when the I think the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and like we ran out of saline? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know that that kind of that kind of thought process is in every data center manager's um, you know toolkit, um, and you know, I, I maybe we just were lulled into a bit of security. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so, and I don't know that there was a master plan for anything. Um, and you know, Germany's got Industry 4.0, and now that's spread through through Europe. I'm hoping when we do rebuild. Uh, you know, if we start to make investment in infrastructure, which I hope we do, I really do. Um, you know, the the American uh, civil engineers say 4.7 trillion just to bring us to the state of good repair. You know, so let's spend 7 trillion and be the be the leading edge of the whole world. But let's do it smart. You know, let's do it. Let's make our assets smart. Let's make them connected. Let's get all the citizens connected. You know, when when they build a high speed train between London and and Manchester and Birmingham in the UK, they call that economy. They don't call that train. They call that economy. You know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's okay to let governmental agencies do something that influences economy. It's not just transportation. And, you know, we need to connect people to the internet. We need to connect people to transportation. That's economy. But we need to do it in the future way. In Iowa, we passed a some huge amount of money for fiber optic to run across the, the state. Well, I'm pretty sure 5G towers are going to be a lot cheaper to roll out than fiber optic across Iowa with like no population centers. Well, know? and now and now Elon Musk is putting, you know, yeah. 10,000 satellites at Starlink and you'll be for 50 bucks a month, you'll get low latency, high speed internet and along with 5G, you know. So right. you know, you're you're 100 right. We need to look forward, and and you know, and I know this is a little sensitive with the with the Hawaii, Hawaii or Hawaii or whatever the the Chinese uh, 5G company is. Uh, well, you know, right. and yeah. you know, we need to we need to be aware of that kind of stuff. But we work with people like I'm on the uh, Industrial Internet Consortium, and there's people from that company there. They're they're great contributors. They're you know they're super good. So one of the questions I really love to ask people on the show is. What ha- I mean, there, there's so much that we've changed our thinking on in the last 90, 90 days. But, you know, what have you changed? your? What's the biggest way that you've changed your thinking in a positive way the last kind of 90 days as well as like the last two years? Um, well, I've had a lot of opportunity evaporate. Uh, so now it's it's what kind of a world and what kind of a day do I want to create for myself and the people around me is what what I'm focusing on. Um, you know, we're here for a lot of different reasons. I mean, look, you know, I don't mean to get too philosophical, but you can see the Himalayas now from from cities in India that you'd never able to see them before. L.A., you see the pictures of L.A. now and you can see the Hollywood sign. There's hardly any traffic on the road. Um, you know, for the first time ever, uh, we're producing more electricity in the United States from wind and from solar than we are from coal. Now, I, I don't Again, my friends in the coal mines don't send me uh, emails, please. Uh, you know, I'm for everything, you know, but we have air to breathe that we need to, you know, make sure it's one planet kind of deal. And, you know, of course, China's building, you know, more more coal plants than we can shake a fist at. But but um, there's some interesting signs going on. And, and you know, I'm, uh, if, if you were a 
if you were you if you wanted to be spiritual about it, you could say maybe we're be, we're, we're given an opportunity here because when we were on the treadmill, when we were on the momentum and the treadmill of pre-COVID, we weren't going to stop and really change much. Change is very slow, especially when things are good and the economy was very very good. Um, and so we're not going to stop and interrupt a good economy to do you know the right thing, so to speak. Now we have a chance. There's been a pause. We don't necessarily have to rebuild everything in the same format it was yesterday. It's like you say, let's be smart and let's look towards the future and build things towards the future. So I'm putting part of my effort into what does that look like? What does that really seem like it is? And especially for the areas that I can influence, what is that? And how do we rebuild with that in mind? So like your like your your question about the meat processing, you know, it's the same with maintenance. Well, if a maintenance job takes two people to do, you know, what, how are we going to do that? You know, when they have to be in close proximity with each other, that that kind of thing. That's one of the smaller things. But, um, you know, should we be working with smarter assets? Should we be connecting all these data points? Should we have, you know, better care and feeding of the people that are involved in this? Those are the questions that I'm in right now, because I want to lead the community that I'm an influencer in to a positive future. I don't have those answers yet, but I'm just kind of forming those questions. Do you think the arc do you think that the arc has shifted on the industrial technology side? Do you think that this is do you think that this is going to accelerate certain trends but also stop other things? I mean, the outlook for digital twins, for IIoT, for AI, is this an acceleration or I mean, what what's your feeling? Huge, huge acceleration. Automation, optimization, uh, efficiencies all through digitalization. Absolutely. It's going to go on a fast track because there'll be, there'll be studies emerge even from some of these simplistic systems that are in there now, um, you know, th- that companies had huge benefits being remote from their assets um, and being able to still operate and run. So I think it's going to go so fast. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to be like a whipsaw. I do believe so. So that's why I'm trying to hu- sort of hurry up and and not come up with answers, but certainly sort of create framework opportunities and journey opportunities to show people what the paths are to move forward in this in this new environment. But a hundred percent echoing your statement that yes, it will now what was moving at a pretty decent pace before COVID is going to be moving so fast it'll make your head spin. Does that mean that there's a new book on the way? I'm working on it. I am working on it. I am working on it. I am working on it. Because I saw we had some guys write uh, maintenance 4.0, and it's a good start. You know, it's really good. I mean, so it's it's great. You know, get your feet wet. You know, a lot of people are new to the topic. Um, you know, for me, away from the 4.0, maintenance is you know repair, renew, replace, restore, and inspect. Reliability is uh, functional assurance. And and failure-free operation, and then asset management is value from assets. So making sure we have the managing system in place to assure value from assets at every life cycle phase. Reliability, making sure we have the systems, technologies, and processes for for failure-free operation or for functional assurance. And then maintenance, making sure we're only doing what we need to do to make those two higher things actually happen. Um, and not doing anything that's not technically valid. There's a lot of not technically valid uh, things going on out there. Anything that's collative, anything that's computative, and anything that's decision tree oriented, that is going to be done by machine in the next year or two. 
So if you have people that are doing correlative tasks, if you have people that are doing computational tasks, and if you have people that are doing decision tree tasks, um, those are going to disappear. It, we need to upskill our workforce. That's another great, we have this huge unemployment right now. What a great thing to create an upskill, a national upskill effort, you know, to change their, their, their older skills to skills that are going to be more needed and more appropriate in the future. The need for people isn't going to disappear, but they're, you know, we're going to be a lot more efficient in our companies. So, you know, hopefully that'll be a prosperous economy. Then we can have more jobs in the economy, but the jobs are definitely shifting definitely shifting. So, sorry, I, I want to go back because you have my mind spinning here for a sec. Okay, so this, so you're, you're going to be seeing automation of decisions that humans were traditionally making in a significant way. So, we're going we're, we're gonna to see programmable decision making, and you think that's going to be widespread based on we now have the ability to collect mass amount of data. We, we now have the connectors and the technology to be able to gather it all and to put it into a format. So you think, you, you think the next wave is, is really automating decision-making in large companies. Is that accurate? Yes, because listen, here's the new thinking. Bad things are going to happen in the future. Bad things are going to happen. So whether that be a terrorist event, whether that be a, a weather event, whether that be a food you know, now there's, there's, you know, threats to the food supply chain, whether it's going to be some kind of pandemic or some kind of health incident, um, you know, some bad things are going to happen in the future. And they have, and we've had enough history to know that, you know, every couple of years, every five years, every 10 years, you know, the severity of them just keep getting, getting more and more intense. So, so during those bad events, how are you going to practice resilience? You know, so the time to plan, uh, you know, the, the what's going to happen in the hurricane when you're when you get flooded isn't during the hurricane when you're being flooded because that's what everybody else is thinking about it and there's no more pumps left or there's no more generators left or there's no more whatever you need to solve your problem everybody has the same problem and all you know there's no supply chain in the world that can that can serve that so we're going to have to serve it ahead of time and plan for it so it's resilience that's going to be the word if, if, if you heard me say reliability a lot in the last 21 years, you're going to hear me saying resilience a lot next 21. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many supplier sheets I've filled out, you know, to become a supplier at some big company, you know. Almost none of them asked me if I had multiple sources for any of my production. Wow. You know, I, I, they, they, would, they would ask where it was manufactured. However, I never got pushback on the manufacturing location, not a single time, you know. Wow. We have products manufactured in a lot of different places. Yeah. We obviously have a subset that's manufactured in China because that's right. what you do. But never was I ever asked about, you know, dual sourcing of any of the materials, um, you know, the ability that if, you know, or, or my own financial situation. How about that? Right, right. <laughs> Right. Exactly. In fact, I, you know, I mean, I've never supplied any sort of financial information. I could go bankrupt tomorrow. You know, uh, I'm not we're, we're really healthy. I don't want to put that out. I just um, but, you know, I, there's got to be we got to get smarter. And I but I, I hope with your voice, I hope doing things like this, I hope with the content that you're putting out, we're going to be able to remake the great American machine that got us, you know, that won us World War II, and hopefully it's going to win us the 21st century. Well, and where, you know, our snapshot, we do snapshots all the time, snapshot research. So our snapshot research is 
there's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary amount of people who aren't quite aware of the opportunities that are available to them for digitalization. That's a way too big. I would say that's almost 50% of the market. Then, then the other 50%, uh, if you if you're gonna take uh, 40% of them, uh, they're either with no clear digitalization strategy and they're piloting the heck out of a bunch of different technologies. And then you got some, then you've got the uh, that's 20%. 20% of them have a clear strategy and they're piloting the heck out of technologies. And only about less than 10% have broken out of that piloting and they're going to scale on digitalization. And something's just keeping everybody back from scale. And I don't know if it's a, a strategy issue, if it's a technology issue, if they're, if they're stuck sort of in their legacy technology and they're so invested in their legacy technology, they don't want to let go of it to move to the you know, to the future technology. Um, so I'm, I'm not positive as to what the answers are on how to advance it, but I think COVID itself will provide a lot of incentives for companies to do so. Look, the, nobody, there's no insurance company that processes claims manually anymore. That's all machine learning and AI. And there's no, you know, there's no mortgage applications that are processed by a, a cubicle farm with a hundred people in there moving paper. That stuff just doesn't happen anymore. We're just, you know, the, the, if you really want to get me going here, we're stuck in this whole concept of are the whole application for digitalization is predictive maintenance. I mean, come on, you know, we're going to take the, the, the far flung opportunities of digitalization to predict the maintenance requirement that we already knew we needed. You know, no way. That is that is a low bar. Um, so let's not call it predictive because it doesn't really predict anything, even with AI you know, let's call it condition monitoring first, and then you'll make me very happy. But, but, but how about planning? How about scheduling? How about MRO? How about, you know, how about all the other things that go with condition monitoring? You know, there's so many parts of the maintenance process that could be automated. It could be automated without AI. You know, the workflows can be audited, you know, I mean, automated in a lot of the great software packages that are out there. But now add AI to the mix and, you know, it's not whether Jimmy planned this or Johnny planned it, you know, the machine planned it. The machine plans it all the time the same way. And as we improve the machine, the machine learns that never forgets it. And the machine never goes on vacation. And the machine never gets sick. Yeah. So I, I posted something on LinkedIn the other day. Um, and we're, we're getting towards the end of the time. So I want to be sensitive of that. But did you see the announcement in Arizona about the, I think it was a 15, it was a 12 or $15 billion um, uh, Silicon facility going in. Well, that's, is that Elon Musk or what, which one is it? No, no, no. It was a, uh, it was a Taiwanese TM. Oh yes, 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 yes. yes. TMNT or TM. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what I found absolutely shocking about that though was Best case, they're going to only employ fifteen hundred people. <laughs> well, you know, I've been around long enough. I, you know, one of the things with ultrasound is we used to go into the automotive plants, you know, the seventies and eighties up in Detroit. I mean, it was packed with people. I mean, packed with people. And now you go into an auto plant, and I mean, it's got maybe a quarter of those people in on an assembly line. And I have a feeling that that's even gonna gonna change pretty mightily in the future. Here, you're right. <laughs> Are you are you a person who you think it? Do you think that the jobs are going to be realized in other areas, but not in the manufacturing? Or are you kind of a person that's like UBI because we need to 
pay people somehow. Well, and so e- either way, what difference does it make? So, you know, you know, let them ponder, let them make art for us. Let them, let them do things that are nice. Um, you know, so, so either way. So, so I, you know, I guess I lean towards people who always have a productive pursuit if that's, you know, if that's what they want. Um, cause there's, there's no end to the human imagination. So I think that we can always create industrial pursuits, but let's, let's take it the other direction and, and say not now we can, now it's, it's like Maslow's curve. Are we, or, or pyramid, are we going up towards the top of that as a society, not just individuals achieving actualization, a society achieving actualization. And if, you know, if there's start with, there's plenty in the world, there's plenty of food and there's plenty of money. Getting out of the scarcity mindset. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and what would the outcomes be? Could there be outcomes that contribute to our society in a different way than a productive worker contributes to society? There's no argument about what that contribution is. We just don't know these new contributions yet. Um, and so why write them off? I'm a guy, you know what's at the heart of everything I do is called possibilities. You know, I'm into possibilities. I, I don't like it when the government limits my possibilities. I don't like it when my work limits the possibilities. I don't like it when clients limit my possibilities. I'm a possibility guy. Um, and I like to stay as open to all possibilities as possible. And I resent it when people minimize possibilities or try to reduce possibilities. I want all possibilities available to me at all times. So I want to, so I want to give you the possibility. Uh, if you were to ask the audience for anything, if you have a question to ask the audience or you want to direct them to some resource, you know, is there, is there something you'd like to ask the, the listenership? Yeah. I'd like to ask them to stand in a question and I'd like them, I'd like them to stand in the question of what kind of a future do I want to be in? And then I want to ask, uh, ask them a second question, which is, what would I have to do to get to that future that I'd like to be in? And, and I would, I, don't hurry for an answer. You can ask that question today. If you want to come up with an answer, do. But then ask it again tomorrow and ask it again the next day and ask it again the next day. And you'll find out that amazing insights. You may say, I don't know what I want in the future. If you ask yourself that question every day for the next 10 days, uh, you will have amazing insights into what kind of future you want. This, there will be no other time in our lifetime where we will have such an ability to influence the future because the past broke down, the past disappeared. So let's embrace that. Let's embrace that. That is so exciting that we can create, we don't have to worry about the garbage of the past now. Now there's a lot of good stuff in the past too. So what is it? So let's start with a clean slate and decide what do we want the future to be for us, for our kids, for our kids' kids, what kind of a future do we want to be? And then what would we have to do to get to that kind of future? And then let's put people in office who share that same view. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This was freaking ridiculous. Uh, I was so so happy to get you on. I, I had so much fun. Thank you. It was really great talking to you. Great questions. And it's an honor to be a guest. And hopefully I'll be able to come back sometime soon. A- a- absolutely. And hopefully at some point in person. Yeah, great. Let's do that. See you, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Find us on whichever podcast app you use. Thank you for listening. I'm Drew Allen. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.